Hey, it's great to be here in Kewaskum. I'm wearing my flannel just for you. Okay, I said, I'm, I'm going to Kewaskum. Hey, you know, I want to, I want to, I got dressed apart. I mean, you guys are like hunters up here and stuff like that. But, uh, but it is Christmas time. It is Christmas time. And, and you know how we know it's Christmas time is, is that Butch has his lights up. Okay? Now, I don't know if you guys know this. We, we have the blessing of being served by uh, Butch here on the custodial, class, uh, custodial staff here. He's a great guy. He loves being here with us on Sunday mornings. And I don't know if you know this, but every year Butch just totally decks out his house up there in Campbellsport and his lights. And he has invited all of us to go and, and see his house uh, between now and you know New Year's Day and stuff like that. His address, I have his address right here. It's 228 Jenny Street in Campbellsport. So if you want to if you want to go to Butch's house and check out what he does every year, it's a fun way. But not only not only do we see the lights, but how many of you got a chance to participate in the parade last week? Any of you guys get a chance to be there? You guys had some great weather for the parade. You didn't have to freeze or anything this year in the in the Kiwaskum parade. So that was that going on. But but the real reason that we know that it's it's the Christmas season is not because of Butch's lights, and not because of the the Christmas parade. The real reason that we know that it's Christmas time is because of all the advertising that's going on. I mean, that's how we know it, right? I mean, like whether it's on the television during the football games and, you know, they want you to go out and buy the latest Samsung phone or the new iPhone X or 10. Is it the iPhone 10 or iPhone X? 10. Okay, all right. I'm not sure if it's X or 10. Uh, and, and, or, or, or whether it's the, the things on the side of the, your, your screen on the computer or, when you're, or whether it's those pesky little things, that, the mailers, flyers that you get in the mail during this time. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. And, and there's just, between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, there's this full court press by corporate America to get out and, and for us to buy as much stuff as we can buy during this time. And, and really, can you blame them? I mean... For them, it's a matter of survival. I mean, isn't this when they make all their money, right? I mean, that's why they call it Black Friday, because you move from the red to the, the black during this time. But, um, but do you know what advertising really is? At its, at its core, advertising is nothing more than the glorification of stuff. That's what it is. That's the glorification of things. It's... They make this stuff look as great as possible as it possibly can so that you will want it and go out and buy it and worship it and, you know, all go out and worship the new iPhone, all bow down. But, you know, so this, but this word glorification is, isn't a word that we use too much, right? That's kind of a churchy, spiritual word. But I looked it up on, on the Internet and came up with some pretty good definitions. There's, there's a few definitions out there. The first one is vocabulary got dot com to glorify something is to praise or honor something or someone to an extreme degree if you like someone you might compliment or praise them but about glorifying them takes that a whole step further when something is glorified it's praised to the highest degree possible then there's another one this is from dictionary.com glorify is a verb used with an object glorified glorifying to cause or to treat as being more splendid excellent than would normally be Considered. And so that's what advertising is. It's the glorification of stuff. It's saying how cool and how great and how excellent this stuff is. Now, we know as 
followers of Jesus Christ, for those of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, that to glorify something, to glory something, is, is reserved exclusively for God. Okay, we're not to glorify stuff or anything like that, but it's to be used, that, that, that phrase and that, that action is to be used exclusively only for God. We're to glorify God and, and to make great of him, to, to see how awesome and powerful and wonderful he is. And there's, there's sometimes when I think I've seen God's glory, you know, like at its best, at its best. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you're like, oh, wow, if I've, if I've ever best seen the glory of God, it's like here or in this situation. I mean, there's some, been some times in my life where I feel like I've, I've really best seen God's glory. One time was last summer. I had a chance to go out to climb this mountain in Europe. It's the tallest mountain in Europe, Mount Elbrus. And they've got a picture of it. And, and that, no, when we were at the top of the mountain, I mean, 18,500 feet, we got to see, you know, mountains for hundreds and hundreds of miles we got to see vistas for almost thousands of miles being at the top of europe and i was like holy cow if ever i saw god's glory best it's got to be up here i mean all these mountains and you don't go to the mountains to feel big and strong you go to the mountains to feel small you know and you're when you're there and, and they're like wow god is so powerful and, and certainly romans chapter one talks about how it's in nature that we see the handiwork and the glory and the brilliance of, of God. But maybe I thought, you know, maybe it's not so much when we're up big and tall and, and we see the glory of God, but maybe we've got to get, like, small. We've got to look, look inwards to see the glory of God. And, and if you ever spend some time looking at yourself, at the human body, and looking at the, the engineering that goes on in the human body, you're like, this is pure brilliance. Like you just think about all the systems in, in the body, you know, the lymph node system, the nervous system, you know, the, the, the vascular system. The, what's the, I mean, all these systems have to work together in perfect harmony to make us move and act. And, and I, I, don't know if, I don't know how you can be a doctor and be face-to-face with the brilliance of God's engineering every single day and not believe in God. I mean, not just talking about being a Christian, but just understanding that there's some serious engineering that went into this. I mean, let's just take blood, for instance. I mean, blood, I, I give blood regularly at the, at, the, at the blood center here in West Bend. And, uh, and the last time, the, the phlebotomist, the, the person who takes your blood, you know, I was talking to her, and she, says, and she was telling me about how they've been trying to come up with artificial blood. You know? And you know what? They can't do it. <laughs> they've been trying for 40 or 50 years and they can't do it. We can't even produce blood. We can't produce this stuff that, that does everything, that fights off diseases and brings oxygen to our, to our you know, muscles and causes, you know, prevents fatigue and stuff like that. I mean, there's just some massive amounts of engineering. So you, if you want to see the glory of God, maybe the best place to look is, is inside our, our own, own bodies. But then... If you know me well, those who know me well, that, that uh, one of the best places to see the glory of God, I think, I think, is if you can get outside on a clear night and get away from all of the lights of the city and all the ambient light and, the, and the, you know, stuff like that, and you can get underneath the stars and you look up at the stars and you just, you can't count them. Have you ever done that? How many of you, have you ever been up, or you're up north or you're, you're 
out maybe in another country or something like that. It's just absolutely amazing. And you look up at them, you can't count all the stars. Last, uh, last summer I had a chance to, to be outside under a star and I was able to show my son the Milky Way for the first time. We saw the Milky Way is right over the top of us. And then, and then to think, each one of those stars is a sun all to itself, a galaxy all to itself with a planet spinning around it, and it's burning and burning and burning at these degrees and temperatures that we can't... And they're going to be burning for billions of years. You know, they're just going to keep on burning. Just think of the power that went into creating not just one of those stars, but all of those stars. And it's like, wow, you know, if you want to see God's, you know, glory at, at, at his best, at zenith, then maybe the place to look is just up at the stars. But then maybe there's another place where we see God's glory best. Maybe God's glory is, is best seen or best displayed in something that's not as, as big as the mountains or as, as, as intricate as the human body or as, or as powerful as the, as the universe. Maybe it's, it's seen in something in some places that we, we just would have never expected it. In hiddenness, in humility, in poverty. And last year we kicked off, last, last week we kicked off this, the series, The Cradle, the Cross, and, and the Crown, and Dan talked about the, the cradle, the manger, that doubled, you know, as a cradle for the Son of God to step into it. And, and there's that verse in John chapter 1, verse 14, that he talked about, that it says that the Word, the, 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 this expression of God, this Word became flesh, and we have seen His, what? Glory. We've seen his glory. Maybe we can get that verse up there. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst them. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only. That John is saying that, that in the, the cradle, in, in the manger, that we see something of God and God's glory that we can't see in the stars or the mountains or in the human body, that, that the word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. And we see God's incredible commitment and love and concern for the human race. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. The, the, the baby in the, the manger grows up, and he, he becomes a man. And uh, he lives amongst us for about 30 years. And he has this, this amazing ministry. And, and um, John, the, the ba- John the Baptist, his cousin, kind of outs him. He's, he says, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of, of the world. And, and, and Jesus has this amazing ministry. And, and at the end of his three years of ministry, he is getting ready to go to the cross. And he's acutely aware of this. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter, chapter 12 at the scene we're going to look at where Jesus is getting ready to go. And I, do we know what page is on? 762. 762. And uh, in John chapter 12, first of all, let me, let me tell you about John. Let me tell you about John. John was one of Jesus' followers. He's one of his closest friends. And, um, and by the time John writes his gospel, is his account of Jesus' life. There's been already been other accounts of Jesus' life written. There's been other gospel uh, books have already been written. And, and John, and they all kind of borrow from one another. So whether you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, 
there's some overlap. You know, you read this and you're like, I think I've, I've read this before. But, but then John says he's the last one to write his account of Jesus' life. And he says, essentially, you know what? I'm going to write about all the stuff that the other guys forgot, like that they left out. I'm going I'm to highlight stuff and I'm going to talk about stuff about who Jesus was. And, and he begins by pulling, pulling back the curtain on Jesus' life and talking about who he really is. He's the word of God become flesh amongst us. And so, so John is the last account of Jesus' life. And he includes some stuff that, that isn't found in any, anywhere else. And that's one of, one of the accounts is, is right here. And, and Jesus has just come in to Jerusalem. Now, do you remember how Jesus came into Jerusalem on the week that he was going to be betrayed? What was he riding on? A donkey. I was riding on a donkey. And they're hailing him as king. And, and they're welcoming him as a, as a king. And Jesus, you would think he would be ecstatic at this point. You would think he'd be enthusiastic, like, oh, wow, they're finally recognizing me as their king, as their Messiah. But if you read verse 23 of chapter 12, it says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, there's a word, glorified again. Glorified. We're going to see, we're going to see God in all of his glory. Not in the universe, not in the mountains, but in, in the Son of Jesus Christ. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he skipped down to verse 27. He says, but now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's like, he's like, Father, show how great and awesome and powerful you are. Glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Okay, so let's just kind of pause here and, and talk about this for, for a while. What, what's actually going on here in this scene? Jesus is is riding in to Jerusalem. And they're, they're welcoming him as their king, as, as, their, as their Messiah. And, and you would think that, uh, that Jesus would be ecstatic. But what, did, but what did they expect from their king? What did, the, what did the Jewish people expect the Messiah to do? Yes, that's right. That, 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 that he would overthrow the Romans. That he would he would essentially that he would solve all of their problems, right? That he would he would you know kick out the Romans and defeat them and put the Jewish nation back on top. And that that he would immediately, powerfully, and profoundly just solve all of their problems, take care of everything. But instead, Jesus comes in and he starts talking about the cross. He knows that he has to go to the cross. And, and, and he, he says that he's about to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's, that he's going to show how amazing and powerful and brilliant God is. But he's going to do that through the cross. Through the cross, and he, he even is so overwhelmed that he says, "My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour." Should I say, "God, listen, I I don't want to go to the cross. Let's let's put it halt right here." He's like, "No way, no way. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour." He says, "This is exactly the reason why I came here. This cross is exactly the reason why I came." And then he yells out, "Father!" 
glorify your name. And the Father, of course, answers as I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. When you go to the cross, Jesus, the world will see just how great I am. Because it's, it's, it's in the life and death of Jesus that we see God's incredible commitment and compassion for humanity that we won't see anywhere else. We won't see it in a starry night sky. We won't see it in the mountains. We won't see it in the intricacy of, of, of the human body. We just won't see it. It's in the, in the life and death of Jesus that we see God's incredible compassion and his commitment for the human race. And we, we best see the glory of God when we look at the cross. Because that's how much God loves us. Now, the cross wasn't an, an afterthought, right? It wasn't an afterthought in God's mind. I mean, it, it was actually something that he planned from the very beginning. If you go back all the way to Genesis, it's Genesis by, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, the world's a mess. I mean, it really is a mess. It's just a very dark, dark world. There's murder and mayhem all over. It's just, just chaos. And, and, and against this back, black backdrop, God makes this incredible promise to one man. He says to Abraham, he says, Hey, listen, I'm going to bless the whole world and I'm going to do it through you and through your offspring. I'm going to return the world back to the way it was initially and the way that I intended it to be. And I'm going to do it through you. And, and God begins to fulfill those promises. Abraham becomes this, this big family. His father is this great nation. That nation goes down into Egypt. God powerfully and miraculously rescues them out of Egypt as slaves. He brings them into the land that he promised them. And, and they become, for a while, the epicenter of the world. They are on top militarily, powerfully, mightily, you know, politically, all those things you can think of. They are on top. But because of their own sinfulness, and because that was never God's plan from the beginning, was just to bless one nation, what did he say? I'm going to bless all nations through you. Not just Israel, all nations. That's been his plan from the very beginning. So they are, they are taken away. And at that time, they're just wondering, it just seems like all of God's promises have failed. Until Jesus arrives in the manger. And he says over and over and over again, when I am glorified, when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all men, all nations to myself. He's the fulfillment of everything that God has been promised, promising from the very beginning, from the Old Testament up till now. But the Jews thought that, that, they, that he was going to rescue them powerfully out of their problems. But Jesus came and he came to solve not all of their problems, but the one greatest problem that we're ever going to face. Do you know what the greatest problem that the humanity is ever going to face? What's the, what's the greatest threat to the human race today? Does anyone know? What's that? Itself? Itself? That's close. That's close. It's, uh, let, me tell you, let me tell you what the greatest threat to humanity is today. It's not a nuclear North Korea. Okay, it's not AIDS. It's it's not radical Islamic terrorism. The greatest threat to the human race today and always has been the wrath of God. 
the wrath of a holy God against sinful humanity against which we have no hope. If you and I go before a holy God in the condition that we are in, in our sinfulness, we will be annihilated. Because God is so holy and so pure and his wrath against sin is so powerful, we don't stand a chance. And so Jesus came, not to rescue the Israelites out of all their problems, but to resolve the one problem that every single one of us faces, the wrath of God. And John, the apostle, writes about this. If you turn over to John, 1 John chapter 4, not the, not the Gospel of John, but the, the, the epistle of John, the, one, the letter that he wrote to the churches. John chapter 4. And we're going to read just verses 9 and 10. And I think Stephanie might have that up there in the overhead too, so if you want to just read it up there. He says, This is how God showed his love amongst us, among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an sacrifice for our sin. There's twice there. John talks about the love of God. Let's keep that, keep that up there. He says, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world. Okay, so in the manger, we see something of the glory of God. We see how much God loves the world. He sends his son into the world to live amongst us. That we might have life through him. And then he says that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, what? As an atoning sacrifice. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, which are the red Bibles we have here, our NIV Bibles, there's a little footnote after that word, atoning sacrifice. And that means you, you take that letter and you look down at the bottom of, this, of the page and, and it gives you a, another alternate rendering or definition there. And it kind of explains what an atoning sacrifice means. And what, is, what does it say there? Anyone see what it says, verse 10 down there? Real small print. You need your readers to, to, to get it. Great. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Randy. Yeah. As the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away that on the cross, on the cross... God placed all the sin that you and I should bear and, 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 and be condemned for. He placed it on Jesus. And Jesus, on the cross, he bore the full wrath of God. And it was placed on him so that we no longer have to fear facing the wrath of God. Because it was all placed on on Jesus. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's why it's, it's in the cross of Jesus Christ that we, we best see God's glory because it's at the cross that we see God's incredible commitment and compassion for the human race that we won't see anywhere else. And, and perhaps this Christmas we need to be reminded of this. Perhaps this Christmas that we need to be reminded that, that God didn't love us so much not only just to, to step into our world and become a baby in a manger, but that baby grew up 
and eventually went to a cross to resolve our greatest problem. I mean, I don't know how many of us need to be reminded of that this Christmas. I, I know that there's people in my life that need to be reminded of this. I, I was with this dear, dear family two weeks ago. And I had the privilege of being with them as we stood around the grave of their daughter, who should have been 28 years old. But her life was cut short at 26 due to cancer. And as we stood around her gravesite, we held hands and reminded ourselves of the promises of God found in the Lord's Prayer. I just thought to myself, how badly does this husband and wife need to be reminded of the cradle and the cross. That God loved us so much, not only just to step into the world and become Emmanuel, God with us, but to go to the cross and pay for our sins so that we might have a hope in the future. How much do they need to know that? How much do they need to know that their daughter now has life because she was a solid believer in Jesus Christ? Just a wonderful beautiful, amazing, creative gal who loved Jesus. Last Thanksgiving, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I had a chance to go down uh, to South Milwaukee and serve uh, Thanksgiving dinner to about 150 refugees and immigrants. I didn't do it all by myself, so don't worry about it. I had help, okay? But, uh, but, but I, as I interacted with all these different you know, refugees from Iraq, and from Syria, and from Afghanistan, and stuff like that. It was so cool. And I, I got a chance to meet Mustafa and his, his, his five kids, his wife and five kids. Are, they're living in this small apartment in Cudahy, and his you know, five kids of, of 16, 15, 14, 13, and 12 years old. You know. and, and as I began to talk with them, and they're just these wonderful Muslim people, I thought to myself that they are trying so hard to be right with God. They, they, they do their prayers five times a day and they, they try so hard to be ceremonially clean and, and they, they do all the things that are, that are prescribed for them in the Quran, but they don't ever know, they can't ever know that they're right with God. I just thought, how badly these people need to know that God resolved their greatest problem. They can be right with God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's many people today who grew up in Christianity who believe the same thing, that need to know that at the cross they can be right with God, that we don't have to do anything more. This Thursday, we're going to have a special service at our community center down in West Bend. It's a service that we do every year. It's an ecumenical kind of interdenominational service for families who have lost loved ones to the plague of addiction. And so all sorts of families, we've already lost 30 people this year already, are invited to come. And I hope that they can be reminded that at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God best. Because it's at the cross that we see God's commitment and compassion for humanity. So much so that he sent his son into the world so that he would be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. 1 John chapter 4 says this one last time. 
This is how God showed His love amongst us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. As the one who would turn aside God's wrath, taking it away completely. We're going to end with a time of reflection and communion. And we have uh, the communion elements up here that symbolize the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the bread and the cup. We're going to ask that when, when you are ready, when you're ready, you can come up and you take a piece of bread and you just dip it in the cup and then, and then take it there. And then when you are done with that, we have some nails for you here. We, we, we tried to find ones that look as close to Roman nails as we could possibly find. And we want you to just take a nail with you as a memorial after you've taken communion as a reminder to you of God's great commitment to humanity. So much so that he sent his very best, his one and only son, into the world that we might live through him. We're going to have some questions up here on on the screen for you to reflect upon and pray about and meditate over. And after you feel like God has spoken to you, we're going to invite you to come right on up and take communion privately yourself and then grab a nail as a memorial. Let me just pray for us as we enter into this time. Father God, there's so many ways that we can see your brilliance and your glory. We might see it in a sunrise or a sunset or a starry night sky or the beauty of the nature that surrounds us. But really, there's no way for us to better see your glory and how glorious you are than when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That it was at the cross that you demonstrated your love and your compassion and your incredible commitment to fallen humanity beyond the shadow of a doubt. You entered into our experience, experienced what we experienced, experienced our pain, experienced our world, and ultimately experienced a cruel cross. And at that moment, all of God's anger and wrath against sin was poured out on Jesus so that we can have a life and a hope and a future with you. And God, if there is somebody here who might not understand that, who might not believe that, I would pray that you would come alongside of them and whisper to them and let them know that it's true. It's true. They can have life with you because you sent your son as an atoning sacrifice, the one who would take away the wrath of God so that we might have life. I pray that you would meet us in a powerful way this morning as we take the bread and take the cup.
We pray this in Jesus' name.